I'm Tom Slaw, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. October 1st, 2019, CIO Magazine published an article titled, Shift Your Focus from Technology Acquisition to Real Solutions and Outcomes. On December 18th, 2020, Forbes published an article titled, Outcome as a Service, Why and How to Leverage Technology. And on December 10th, 2021, Harvard Business Review published an article titled, How Your Company Can Be More Strategic About Its Technology Spending. And in that article, the author asserts that companies should have an obsessive focus on the outcomes new technology is supposed to enable. Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, uh, we will be exploring the changing value propositions of technology solutions with Kara Sprague, Executive Vice President and General Manager at F5. Now, for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute. We track the financial performance of the largest publicly traded technology providers on the planet. More importantly, we perform deep operational benchmarking with the technology companies that are on the TSIA platform. It is that data that informs the insights you will hear in this series. So let's get into it. So, so first of all, Kara, you have an impressive background. Uh, you, you went to this little school called MIT. Uh, you have held frontline engineering roles. Uh, you have worked at Agilent, HP, Oracle, and then you made partner at McKinsey, leading one of their technology practices. And now you are at F5 Networks. What are your current responsibilities? Hey, Thomas, and thanks for, thanks for having me. My current responsibilities at F5 include leading a couple of our product groups. I lead our big IP product group, as well as the Nginx product group, as well as the enterprise product operations for the company. Within the product group pieces, it's, it includes engineering, products management, product marketing, and it's about ensuring that those offerings and those families have a long-term success in the market and meet customer demand. Wow. So a, a pretty big remit there. <laughs> so as we're talking about these changing value propositions, um, we published a book a decade ago called B4B. And in that book, we basically have been asserting that technology providers need to pivot from product differentiation to value realization. And as you, right, as an industry executive, have a front row seat to this pivot, let's talk about you know, the F5 case study here. And, and, and let's start at the beginning. Tell us about the early products of F5, their value propositions, and, and who is our typical buyer? So F5's early commercial success came in the late 1990s, and we were selling load balancers to the really high growth .com companies. We provided a proxy, and it was generally packaged as a hardware appliance, and it would sit in front of websites and applications to ensure that the spikes in end-user demand would be appropriately distributed to the backend servers. And that ensured that there were high availability and performance for those applications and those websites. And then later, as, as those websites and, and e-commerce portals became much more mainstream, our customer base expanded and we covered large enterprise and government organizations. Our typical buyer was very fluid in those early years, especially as enterprise organization models to support those websites and applications were, were still emerging and developing. But eventually, the core responsibility for on-prem load balancing became the domain of network operations teams. And those generally report through a VP of IT infrastructure and then into a CIO. Now, in the, in the early 2000s, uh, we ended up expanding our capability set, and we built a lot more functionality on top of, of this big IP offering and took advantage of the strategic control points that we owned being the proxy fronting business critical apps. 
And so those expanded capabilities started including things like web application firewalls or WAFs, access management, which ties a user identity to the access to, to applications, policy enforcement and traffic steering, um, L4 firewalls and anti-denial of, of service functionality um, and so on. And, and the value proposition there that we offered to our customer set was around robust capabilities and consolidation of those network functions into a single network device. Our, our typical buyer persona through much of the early 2000s remained that NetOps persona, but we also started to address the certain needs of security operations teams as well, and later expand into service provider vertical. And my working assumption here is that the early products were all on-premise, like you said, hardware appliances that your customer would, would install and basically manage on their own. Okay. So pretty traditional as, as, as the internet was booming there. Um, but I watched a, a keynote from your, your CEO, I think it's 2019, and he, he talked about the fact that F5 needed to transform itself and needed to reach new buyers and specifically in, in DevOps. So, so if you fast forward to today, and you already mentioned the fact that you know, your buyers have been evolving over time, who are your target buyers? And, and I think more importantly, what are the value propositions you're putting on the table for those target buyers? Yeah, so we, we significantly expanded our target buyers over the past several years. Uh, you're precisely right. I would say um, up until about 2017, uh, we were predominantly a hardware appliance focused vendor selling those solutions in a perpetual model. Uh, that was 90 plus percent of, of our product. Yep, classic. And, and it was very largely oriented to network operations teams or NetOps. Uh, now, NetOps remains a core focus for us, and we continue to provide what we call multi-cloud application delivery and security technologies to those buyers. Um, and we do that for both legacy applications as well as much more modern um, container native applications. And we make that capability available in multiple deployment models today. So we offer customer managed hardware, um, you know, that's a, a legacy of our past in terms of um, the, the packaged uh, systems. We also offer customer managed software solutions, which can be deployed on-prem or in a public cloud. And in addition, we offer software as a service and managed services today. Now, on top of the NetOps personas, we are also targeting uh, CISOs and SecOps teams, and they are also a primary focus for us. And the value proposition to them is around what we call a best-in-class suite of multi-cloud application security capabilities. Those things include the web app firewall, includes anti-bot, anti-denial of service, API security, access management, um, traffic break and inspect, anti-fraud, abuse protection, as well as things like cloud workload protection. So it's a, a vast uh, array of, of application security capabilities. DevOps and AppDev teams are another set of target buyers that, that we are going after. And we've extended our value proposition to those more modern container native applications and thereby shifting left many of the capabilities that used to be inserted into the application data path by network operators. And so increasingly, as you shift left, much of those capabilities you want to target DevOps and AppDev teams now, the final, final thing I would say is uh, with a number of our, our new capabilities uh, that I talked about in the security space, we've also expanded our proposition further to target fraud and risk officers, um, some line of business operators, and even application owners. And those value propositions would be around things like anti-fraud, abuse protection, and end-user application or experience optimization. So, so I'm, there's a couple of things I want to click into there. So let's start with really the footprint, right? So, so what you mentioned there is the fact that you've gone from you know, hardware appliances, your customer 
you know, bought, managed on their own. And now you have this, this entire spectrum. So they may still have the equipment on site, but you're managing it for them, right? So, so that's a, ma- a complete managed service all the way up actually, to where- Actually, the managed, managed service is totally remote. So we, we currently oh, do have okay. a managed service of customer on-prem equipment, but we do offer a managed, uh, managed WAF and a managed denial of service capability via our Silverline offering. Perfect. I'm glad you clarified that because what we're seeing is, is hardware companies are, are making this transition in the portfolio Mm-hmm. One of the moves on the chessboard is they may still have the equipment on site and they're managing it on the customer's behalf. You're saying, look, we don't have that scenario, but we do. We will have a managed offer where the technology is out in the in the cloud. Okay, right. perfect. And so, uh, and then the second thing around these value propositions, right? So, so I have to imagine again, as you guys were writing the you know the, the dot com boom, it was a lot about the ability for you you know you to deliver performance and scale. Now you start to talk about things like like fraud. And, you know, these security type of, of solutions. I mean, that's a different value proposition. So talk a little bit about how you, you're positioning that. I mean, it can't be speeds and feeds, I imagine. It's got to be a different talk track. No, the talk track, I would say, in, in the space that we play in has changed entirely. You're exactly right. I would say late 90s through, you know, 2000s, even into the mid 2000 teens. It was very much about performance, speeds and feeds. You know, the next generation of appliances will have two or three times the throughput. Uh, mm-hmm. enable you to address this much more traffic. Now, mm-hmm. certainly there's a subset of our of our um, customer portfolio that still cares deeply about that. Uh, you know, for example, if you think about in the service provider domain where they're now rolling out their 5G networks mm-hmm. and, and their core, it's still fundamentally about how much traffic can they process. Sure. Um, but more and more from a more from the enterprise and, and kind of government organization perspective, it's much more about can I um, achieve a, a consistent set of capabilities and policy deployment across the different environments in which I operate? Because customers are no longer operating just an on-prem environment. They have a much, much, much more complex um, IT portfolio that spans on-prem multiple public clouds and, and increasingly these edge type infrastructure environments. And what they're looking for is, is more simplicity and more consistency uh, in deploying policy across them, whether it be traffic uh, and delivery policy to ensure that the, the customer experience end to end is a positive one or security to ensure that, that they have uh, a consistent security posture that's deployed. Um, and so that's, that's very much where we've evolved. Now we've achieved this pivot through a blend of um, organic and inorganic activity. The approach that we've taken over the last four years, the philosophy is, is uh, what my CEO refers to as firing bullets before cannons. Um, and the idea is to start understanding a space, a new market area by investing in your own organic exploration of it, um, either sending a scouting team or sometimes bigger than a scouting team. And if we find that it's a compelling space and if we find that, um, you know, by our own estimates, our organic activity simply won't won't scale mm-hmm. at the speed that we need in order to deliver against the opportunity there. That's where we've thought about inorganic activity. And over the past four years, F5 has actually completed four um, major acquisitions uh, or three three major acquisitions and, and one, one that was a little bit smaller than the others. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was Nginx. And so that helped complement what we had in big IP, which was very focused on, on legacy or traditional applications with, with something that offered similar capabilities, but for more, much more modern uh, container native apps. And then uh, we acquired Shape uh, Security. Uh, and so uh, we saw a lot of c- consistency there in the target persona around SecOps, but then Shape also further expanded our, our target personas into those fraud and risk officers in line of business. Um, Shape also brought with it, you know, a, comp- a very compelling set of uh, advanced analytics and machine learning capabilities that we can leverage across the portfolio. And then the third acquisition that we completed uh, just in January of 2021 uh, was a company called Volterra. 
And it's a, a SaaS platform that allows it to extend. Um, it can be deployed in a customer's on-prem. It can be de deployed on top of public clouds. And they also operate their own edge environment. But the idea is that you can deploy applications on top of Volterra, and those applications can take advantage of the scale and capabilities in each of those different infrastructure environments, but with a common uh, consistent management framework and, and policy framework uh, and security framework. And so that, that was our third. And then uh, more recently in October, we completed the acquisition of a company called ThreatStack, which brings cloud workload protection and advanced threat protection into our security portfolio. So, so those are all um, examples of the inorganic activity. And in most of those cases, we had already our own investments in place uh, where we were getting to know the space, understanding what F5's true differentiation could be, and really getting comfort with going after it in a much more aggressive fashion. So let's talk about that the, those early moves and this you know when you sending these scouting teams if you will right into these new spaces and 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 particularly again this theme of it's a different space with a different value proposition right so as you assembled those teams and and again I think from the product perspective right hey we're going to go out we're, we traditionally have provided this type of value proposition and you know to these types of buyers now we're exploring a very different market with different value propositions. You know, do we have a play there? Yes or no? Before you make the decision, if you have to acquire, you know, assembling those teams, were those? Would you basically be, you know, nominating people internal, you know, folks to go and, and, and do that exploration into the new area? Did you did you recruit externally and, and basically build a tiger team? How did you approach that? Um, because again, it's a different conversation, different buyer, different value proposition. Yeah, it was, a, it was a combination of, of the two. In some cases, we, we had internal folks that were passionate and had good expertise and, and drive to go and pursue those areas. And then in other places, you know, we, we knew what we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And we went and we hired in external talent specifically to go, to go look after those spaces. Like some, some good examples of that would be our, our early exploration of, of SaaS offerings, mm -hmm. uh, as well as our early exploration of, of antibot. Okay. Interesting. Because again, as I look at, you know, bring back the lens of look at a lot of companies, again, figuring out these transformations, right, on the business model, the types of offers, et cetera. These are the questions, right? And, and sometimes companies are just, you know, really want to stick close to their knitting. They know their market, right? They know their particular types of offers. And it, it's hard to get outside of that box, right? And so what levers do you pull to do that? So that's, I think that'll be uh, insightful to the to the listeners. So I, I want to um, uh, shift gears here a little bit, and I want to talk about you know a, a theme that is growing in the marketplace, which are these consumption based pricing models. And um, you know this is moving from per user pricing to models where there's some type of consumption uh, you know based pricing model in play, and, and it's a big move. And you know, for for example, the, the CEO of New Relic put out a missive to their investors uh, describing you know, how this move was impacting every corner of the company, right? Everybody, if you start to go to this model, finance and the way you're selling and, and the product teams, et cetera, et cetera. And I know this is something you're starting to talk about as a company. So how do you prepare a product team to build products that are actually going to be profitable in a consumption-based pricing model? Where do you start? It is totally different, I would say, from, from other types of pricing models. And where, where we have been starting is, is getting an understanding of the unit economics uh, of, of each of these services. Um, you know, in the SaaS world, that involves, you know, modeling how much is the, the cost going to be of, of running this in the cloud environment, you know, everything from the network transport costs to the data storage, et cetera. 
getting an understanding of, of the actual cost of the support teams for those different types of offerings. SaaS offerings, I think everyone hopefully, hopefully understands by now that there's a whole bunch of different roles required to offer a service yeah. that are very different from offering a product, you know, things like your, your SRE teams, uh, your customer success organization functions in a different way, your marketing organization functions in a different way. So really getting a clear understanding of what are the actual unit economics mm-hmm. for these consumption-based offerings. And that should form the basis for, for how you think about uh, what kind of price you offer, at least at a price level. On the price, the licensing term piece of it, uh, it's really about understanding what's in the rest of the portfolio and what kind of synergy you're trying to get from the rest of the portfolio, as well as what is out there in terms of what's being used in the market to consume a similar service. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you have to find the happy medium place of you know, what creates more simplicity for your portfolio to drive cross-selling and expansion there, uh, while also resonating with customers in terms of them understanding fundamentally the kind of pricing offer that you're giving to them. So I, I'm curious, just you know, from your perspective, and you have a very deep and broad view of the industry because of your background. When you think about something like consumption-based pricing, you know, on a scale of, of one to 10, how mature? do you think the industry is really having a a very mature playbook there to run and say, Hey, I know how to figure out the right model here. I I think we're doing as an industry. I think we're super, super early. Yeah. Very early. And and you see that, um, I mean, you see that in a lot of, there's still a large body of the SaaS companies out there are still, you know, showing negative, negative margins. Oh, absolutely. The, you know, potential for strong growth, but I think there's a lack of transparency into the unit economics for a number of those offerings. Yeah. You also see that if you think about more of the consumption, consumption-based pricing for, for other types of things like consumption-based pricing on, on ride shares mm-hmm. through, through Lyft and Uber or consumption-based pricing on, on delivery goods through like all the various food delivery um, mm-hmm. services. That's another area where I think uh, there's just not a strong understanding of, of unit economics. Yeah. And uh, you see a lot of the argument there is still people trying to acquire scale and acquire customers and really investing in the customer acquisition without clarity on if on a per unit basis, they'll be able to actually make money. Well, and just to put some data on that, I mean, so we have an index called the TSI Cloud 40, where we track 40 of the largest publicly traded born in the cloud companies. So these are not small companies anymore. And we look at them every quarter after quarter. And on average, their average operating incomes are negative seven to 10%, mm-hmm. right? And these are companies, again, these are not tiny little companies. The vast majority of them are still traditional user-based pricing. So, you know, if we build on what you just said, now if the, and a lot of those are trying to explore consumption-based because customers want to go there, it creates more, you know, potential growth potential. But, but now if they go to an even more complicated, right, sophisticated pricing model, um, there's even more risk, right, in the profitability. So I think, I agree with your assessment. I still think we're early days in, in figuring some of these models out and truly making them them profitable, and in, in you know what you put on the table a couple of minutes ago with the you know getting people to think differently in the fact that okay if I have an as a service offer everybody needs to operate differently right customer success marketing etc how do you get the product teams to get their heads around that because you know one of the very common scenarios as we see is product teams are being asked let's say to sassify a legacy product, right? Hey, go, go turn this thing and push it into the cloud and go, okay, great. And they're, and they're really fixated on getting the feature functionality, if you will, up into the cloud. And what they're missing is the fact that as they're building this new as a service offer out in the cloud, that it is going to operate in a very different way. And the handshakes between the product team and these other organizations 
has to be different. So how, how do you how do you get the product teams to just you know desensitize them to that? Yeah. <laughs> so so one approach that we have um, that this has been part of the criteria that we've looked for in in a number of our acquisitions. I talked about the Volterra acquisition that we closed in January of 2021 and the uh, ThreatStack acquisition. Both of those, as well as Shape, had extensive experience offering SaaS and managed services capabilities, and so they brought with them effectively at startup scale end-to-end kind of business systems for supporting those offerings. And we've been using those very much to learn and build and incorporate some of those best practices back into F5 mainstream. And so that's really an aspiration that we have with this approach is to learn and take the best from those acquisitions. Yep. Uh, you know, for example, the, the lead generation and kind of digital marketing engine that ThreatStack has honed over time. How do we build that in and use that for our mainstream security offerings? I talked about the Shape Analytics engine and how do you, how do you use that and then start uh, applying much more advanced analytics and then sophisticated machine learning techniques into the rest of our products. Similarly with Volterra, Volterra has consumption-based pricing models. What does that then imply as we as we start bringing Volterra uh, into, into F5's operations? How do we need to adjust our operational processes to accommodate that? There's nothing that gets a company pivoting direction more than you know, a customer and a customer willing to put money on the table. Yep. Um, and when forced with having to figure out how to operate and to integrate these newer capabilities, that really forces all of the mainstream operations to take a look at it and say, how do, how do we have to adjust in order to accommodate this? So it, you know, this is one of the questions I had on my list here because I knew you guys were doing acquisition. And, and again, from the product perspective, you know, I'm curious because, as you said, you're you're acquiring these new capabilities and companies that were born in the cloud and have you know battle scars around you know the, these new experiences, whether it's pricing models, consumption based, whatever, building as a service, thinking about that. How do you navigate that integration, right? Because what we see is sometimes companies will will hold those, those acquisitions to the side. They they want them to operate very independently because they don't want to you know basically squash them with you know the legacy. Um, but at the same time you do want to integrate those competencies, right? And, and so do you, do you, is, is there a certain rate of change that you look at there? I mean, how, how, do, how do you think about actually getting that cross-pollinization of the capabilities you've acquired and then getting them to land within the legacy side of the house? I'd say we've been taking a number of approaches, but it certainly has not been, I would not characterize it as the keep them to the side yeah. or mm-hmm. nor would I describe it as tightly integrated. You know, the approaches varied uh, depending on the acquisition with, with Nginx. Um, we knew that the personas targeted for Nginx in terms of modern apps and going after more DevOps and app dev type use cases and personas, we did not want to mingle that with our NetOps target. And in mm-hmm. fact, you know, we felt that there was a distinct market opportunity for us in going after app dev and, and DevOps. And so we intentionally kept that as, as separate, didn't want to kind of uh, integrate or, or rationalize uh, with our existing business. And in fact, we added a whole bunch of resources into that team. And so when Nginx acquisition closed, within a month or so, we added about 100 people to the team. From the core business oh, right. over there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. To accelerate their own product development initiatives. Uh, with the Shape acquisition, you know, again, Shape was something which was a unique beast. It had um, anti-fraud and abuse protection, which was entirely new to, to mm-hmm. F5. Um, and the anti-bot stuff was was something that I said that we were uh, we had a scouting team uh, working on. But the idea was to make Shape broadly available and, and accessible via our, our proxy solutions, which were Big IP and Nginx. Um, and so that was another one that warranted a kind of unique approach of making it its own kind of business line. And uh, over time, identifying 
identifying the elements of it that we could pull into some of our, our mainstream functions in order to build those up and make those make those stronger. With Volterra, you know, we saw some synergy and uh, consistency with the SaaS and managed services capabilities. And so what we've done is we've we've kind of put those two things in in the same kind of product group. It's called the the security and distributed cloud product group. And over time, we're looking at how do we how do we get synergy between mm-hmm. what we what we had in the Shape portfolio and what we have in the in the Volterra portfolio. And ThreatStack is in sort of a, a similar boat. But I would say f- with each of these, it's very much of custom uh, decisions about to what yeah. extent. And it, it's a decision driven by the personas that we're trying to address. And it's driven by the value proposition that we're looking yep. to offer. Yeah. So it's not it's not just here's our play. We acquire and here's our play. It was really about what based on what we acquired, who is the buyer? How does it fit into the current portfolio? Based on that, we'll determine how tightly or loosely it's integrated. And, and right. I know we're, we're on the product you know, theme here today. But I'm just intellectually curious, uh, you know, as you as you describe what you just did, right, with each one of these acquisitions based on the buyer, et cetera, and, and the market we're going after, we integrate at different levels. How do you address the go-to-market? And, and the challenge that we see there is that, you know, coming to like F5, you already have this, you know, portfolio of products that you're selling through a main channel, right, either partners or your main direct sales force. Then you start to bring in these new companies that, again, different space, different buyer. I mean, do you basically say, look, we believe we can get that through our, our legacy sales force or legacy channels? Or do, you, or do you think in terms of it for these examples where it really is a new buyer, new market, we take that to market separately? I'm just curious, how did you rationalize the go-to-market side of it? So part part of this whole discussion about to what extent you keep to the side tightly integrated, I would say the the philosophy or the mentality about bringing on board these companies is we want to we see a vision and an opportunity for us to accelerate their growth and accelerate their business yep. as part of a broader uh, F5 organization. And so that's that's really a kind of North Star principle that, that we apply here. And that drives a lot of the integration decisions, right? Mm-hmm. So when you ask about go-to-market, right? When you have a new a new company come and, and join another one, the, the thing you absolutely want to avoid doing is breaking their go-to-market. Yeah. Um, and so we've left in many cases, those go-to-market teams intact, serving um, in some cases, they become overlays or specialist mm-hmm. teams of the core team. And, and what we have been tracking very closely is to what extent is our core sales team coming up to speed on selling those new the offerings. New offers, yeah. um, and so we look at things like rep participation, what percent of our reps have deals in their pipeline that include these different new offers. And we drive enablement to increase the, the rep participation. We have been infusing our core selling and go-to-market engine with a lot of the new advancements from these companies. I talked about how, um, for example, there's a lot to learn uh, from ThreatStack and their digital marketing and how we're pulling that back into our, our mainstream, the F5 core, core marketing organization and the way that we work there. And so it's, it's very much a, a bit of a, a push-pull in that mm-hmm. sense. Yep. Uh, and I would say part of looking at acquisitions as a technology company, important aspect of, of the diligence needs to be looking at, can you drive acceleration for this business by giving them go-to-market leverage? Like that's yep. one of the standard synergies. Yep. Sure. Um, and so, <laughs> so right. ensuring that we're comfortable and we have conviction that we can is important prerequisite to moving forward with an acquisition. And then making that happen at the end is an important thing that we do as part of our value creation. Well, I appreciate you taking that question because again, it's sort of a little bit off the, the path here, but we're talking about today. But I mean, one thing I heard there, which I think is is really insightful on, on the on the pool side, right? With the, with the, tradi- the existing go-to-market team, right? Within, within F5, looking for the signal that they are starting to position those offers 
Mm -hmm. Right. So not just your, Hey, you know, we want you to sell it or here's, you know, here's some incentive for the sell it, but actually, you, you know, you can see, look at the metrics and see that they're getting it right. They're understanding the offer. They're starting putting it, putting it in. And then it allows you to be more comfortable say, okay, great. We can start to shift more of that go-to-market responsibility to that channel because they're signaling that they're ready. I think, right. I think there's a great, great time. So, so one other thing on the product side, again, in, in the transformation that product teams are going through, to be comfortable with that as a service, to be comfortable with consumption base. The other thing is verticalization and the fact that more and more solutions really have to be uh, optimized. Customers want a story that is not horizontal, right? It's not generic. It, it really is, hey, are you solving my problems in the federal space? Are you solving my problems in financial services? So tell me a little bit about that journey and, and how do you how do you build that type of expertise within product you know, teams these days? Yeah, I, I would say um, I'll, I'll get to the product uh, piece of it in, in just a moment, but I would mm-hmm. say that this is a, a skill set, especially that the, the F5 has, has become very strong at over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the core offerings of F5, both in the big IP portfolio and then Nginx when it came in, uh, it, was, it was funny because both teams described their product as a quote unquote Swiss army knife. It, at the end, it's very flexible and could become whatever the customer needed it to. And by virtue of that kind of offering, our sales teams and our frontline solution engineers and our, our solution architects became very, very attuned to um, how do they build their own set of vertical specific solutions and own set of vertical specific messaging to customers in order to convert that Swiss army knife into something that applied to you know, defense uh, yep. in government or applied to financial services companies or had a unique proposition for service providers. And so it was already a very strong muscle in our sellers. Where I would say that our focus has been is, is pulling that back um, and highlighting uh, the messaging and the story much more in our marketing organization. Um, so building out uh, messaging that targets our, our, our largest customers, uh, customer verticals and a solution portfolio that backs that. And then as we start looking, um, moving back further into the organization, into the actual product side of the house, what we're doing is we're, we're making our product teams much more intimately familiar with customer use cases and how those manifest from different verticals. But at this moment, what we are seeing is, is that that layer of, of kind of vertical specific solutions for a horizontal platform-like offering is enough to meet what we need to do today. So, so let me play it back. In terms of verticalization, it starts with the go-to-market teams because they're closest to the customer and they can't get the deal unless they have a compelling solution. And I, and I you know, would assert that the days of showing up with the Swiss Army knife and saying, look, you know, what do you what do you want to do with it? You can do anything you want. Here you go. Right. It's just not the winning play anymore. Right. Because the customer's like, I, I don't want to have to figure this out. I would really like you to come to the table and tell me what the heck to do with your Swiss Army knife right in my environment. So the go to market teams, they want to get the deal. They got to figure it out. So they do that and they start to have these wins and these success stories. Those filter into marketing, right? Because they can start saying, oh, look, we've got a great case study we can put on the website. So they start to verticalize the go-to-market message from, from the marketing level. And then the product teams, you know, start, like you said, you use the term pull that back, right? Where the product teams start to think about that. And, and you know, our, our belief is instead of the go-to-market teams figuring out the solution with the Swiss Army knife, ultimately from day one, the product teams are thinking about, you know, the solution in those terms, right? What is this, you know, as I'm designing this, what is it really going to mean, again, to, a, to, to a, you know, government solution versus financial services? But, but again, I think we're on a journey as an industry on that. I don't think we've really, you know, cracked the code on that life cycle all the way yet in terms of verticalizing um, in, in a scalable way. But I, but I do think that, you know, the companies have figured that out are, are going to be really well positioned. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I, I think it's, it's all about, um, I mean, there's an element here of, of increasing specialization for offerings mm-hmm. to address, you know, micro segments of demand and, and a customer base, at least at the moment, industry as a whole, I would say is still pretty early on this dimension. Yeah. Um, and within the application delivery and security space, the primary distinction that we're seeing right now is the distinction in how these products and offerings get deployed in a service provider core network mm-hmm. versus how they get deployed for more generic kind of application use for, for yeah. an enterprise. And then I would say there's probably an emerging third third bucket of um, what we would call the SaaS and, and kind of like digital service provider type mm-hmm. companies that are offering really high scale websites. Yeah, yeah. And, and those are really where we're starting to see distinctions. But the middle category that I talked about, kind of like the enterprise and government category, that's we're still very much seeing a horizontal play uh, being very effective in that space. Yeah, interesting. So um, I actually want to take um, a, a walk down memory lane with you. <laughs> so several years ago, I did a session on as a service transformation with your CEO, Francois, and the senior management team. And, and, and to be candid, there were definitely some skeptics in the room, right? Folks that were really weren't sure that this this as a service train was coming their way. But obviously, yeah, based- I remember I remember strong declarations that we would never have to eat the fish. There you go. <laughs> you remember well, exactly. But obviously, based on the current portfolio, you know, the company's moving that way. You're, you're leaning into these new models, right? Um, so I'm assuming that some of those skeptics have a different perspective today. But what do you feel ultimately changed their perspective, right? What, what helped them tip or, you know, what was that inflection point? I think the inflection point, um, and it's, it's been, there's different inflection points for different people, but the analogy I would use is kind of like climbing a mountain, right? When you're starting out in the foothills and you look up at the summit, there's some people that are going to say, wow, we're never going to make it up to that. But you know, you're like, okay, you know, just climb, climb this first couple of, of parts with us. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll see where we are. And then, you know, taking a look at the landscape around you and realizing you've gotten halfway up the mountain, you know, that gives people a lot of renewed sense of saying, yeah, we can actually do this. So there's a piece to switch, which is, you know, we've made, we've come a very long way in the time since you did that, that session. Mm-hmm. We've seen, um, you know, a number, a number of folks have come in. We've, we've brought in expertise from outside the organization. I talked about how we did that in the product side, but we've been doing that in other functions as well. And people that have been to the peak of a different mountain uh, yeah. that can kind of show us how to climb. And I would say there is an increasing sense of confidence from our team that that summit is is, is attainable. And so that's that's been a, it's been a work in progress. It's an output of just steady focus, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears from from everybody, yeah. uh, a lot of hard work. But I, I'm just so proud of how far the team has come. You know, it's really interesting, and I, and I love watching companies go through this journey. And it, you know, and sometimes you know, in the mountain analogy is good, right? Because they sit there and they go, "Oh, you're telling me." That we have to climb this mountain. And oh, by the way, you're also telling me it's pretty freaking steep and it's not easy, right? So there's, so, you know, I, I don't sugarcoat anything <laughs> when we talk about this transformation. But what's fascinating is that for some companies, some leadership teams, basically what happens is they say, look, I don't want to, or I don't think I have to climb that mountain. And they don't, you know, really start that journey. And I think more and more, you know, obviously that's not a tenable uh, position. But again, as I listen to you, I, I think what I heard there is that number one, you know, your CEO and, and I'm sure other key players said, look, we, we are going to climb this mountain, right? So they start that journey, as you're saying. And then number two, you know, you brought in folks to augment that team that that had experience climbing that very mountain. And they said, look, you know, we can help. We know where some, you know, some of the toughest parts are, et cetera. And so it's that it's it, those two elements, right? Making sure that that A, some key players are absolutely willing to take go on the journey that, that are there. 
and you augment that with some folks that have some expertise that helps you make progress. And like you said, and then all of a sudden you look back and you go, look how far we've come. I mean, it's pretty amazing. That's interesting. So, um, I've got uh, two more questions for you. I want to ask, and, and, and these are bringing back the the lens. And, and one is because you, you did have this really fantastic tenure at McKinsey before joining F5. You know, I have to ask, what are the biggest gaps that you see when tech companies like F5, right, attempt this pivot from traditional, transactional, on-prem technology models to more cloud-based, recurring, subscription? I'm sure before, you know, you've seen this play, right? So so what do you think are are some of the biggest challenges companies face there when when they attempt this? I think there's there's one which is, uh, you know, in the early days of the journey, really fully grokking and uh, really understanding that it is an enterprise-wide transformation that's mm-hmm. required. There's not a single function that you can focus on and say, okay, we're going to nail it in this particular part of, part of the organization, like in engineering or product management or over in sales or marketing. Every single function has a role to play because it's an entirely different business system and a different way of operating a company. So that's 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 one one big thing, and and for executives, the the number of unknown unknowns is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then another gap I would say that that I saw in a number of the companies that I worked with um, at McKinsey don't uh, underestimate the IT challenge. Like if, if you think about, uh, I like to liken um, applications and IT infrastructure a bit to sedimentary rock, mm-hmm. layers, layers on layers of layers. And oftentimes the most uh, important things, much like in the human body, the most important autonomous functions are, are deep in your reptile brain. Uh, the most important mm-hmm. functions of an organization are, are layered deep in that, in that sedimentary rock. And you pile on top of that, you know, new applications, new customer experiences, et cetera, et cetera. But to rewire an organization to move from, you know, a, a license-based business where, for example, you sell a perpetual thing in a one-time sale to a customer to moving to something where you're monthly billing them for something right. or in a consumption-based model where you're measuring how much they actually use and then in arrears billing them. Those are such different ways oh, yeah. of measuring and then sending an invoice to a customer that go to that very, very reptile brain of a business. Yeah. I was mixing a bit of metaphors there, but but hopefully. Well, hopefully no, I, I mean, I like the uh, the analogy there in terms of, you know, what you're saying is deep. The core of the organization is is wired to operate a certain way. And then when you move to this new business model, it completely breaks that. And I agree. And in, in, and I really with the fact that, you know, companies should not underestimate, you know, that journey in terms of the core infrastructure and systems. But the other comment, you know, I have spoken to more than one company that will say, look, look, Thomas, you know, you don't get it. Our systems won't support these as a service business models, right? They'll say, look, you know, you just don't get it. And so, look, I do get it. But I also, I have to tell you, I don't think your customers care. Right. I think there's a realization that companies have to come to that. Oh, you, you know, like you, like you said, this breaks us in a very deep way. Right. The way we've been doing business for you years and years and years. But we're going to have to go through that because what is the alternative? The alternative is you're stuck in a business model that customers, you know, aren't, aren't going to spend money on. And so it's it, it's tough. But I think, um, you know, a lot of companies just have yet to come to terms. Right. That this is not about how you you want to do business. It's about how your customers want to do business. Um, and, and I think I think for those companies, and you know, this 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 was a was a very solid decision that that we had to make a few years ago. It's really a question of do I want to continue? Do I want to take on a massive amount of transformation and change right. in order to position myself to continue growing and being relevant right. for many years in the future, 
or do I want to kind of rest on on our, our laurels and and continue doing what we've been doing, but recognize that it's likely going to be a declining market? Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. you know every company has that choice. There's not a right answer there, uh, or there's not always the same answer for every company. But management teams and executive teams really have to be comfortable uh, and and honest with each other about what they have the stomach to take on. Absolutely, and I totally agree with that. We're just finishing up a book that is going to come out next year, and the the title is Digital Hesitation, and we're talking about you know how companies are struggling with this that inflection point, right? And 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 you're right. It is this decision between am I a growth stock or am I a value stock, right? And 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 do I continue to optimize my 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 profitable legacy model? I think you know the biggest concern. And you're right. I totally agree that the answer is not the same for for every company. And, and different companies have different runways on this, right? I mean, you could be a, a value stock maybe for for a long, long time. I mean, let's not forget there are still companies running mainframes, right? I mean, that's a fact. But the biggest risk I think with the value stock play in that positioning is are you or are you not in, in slow motion liquidation, right? Where, like you said, you're not, you're not relevant, right? And so how long do you want to ride that? And, um, and, and so, um, you know, it is, it is a, a tough decision. I think it's the toughest uh, decision that I see CEOs and boards have to make, right? This inflection point, I'm sure for Francois on the board, you know, there were lots and lots of discussions around, are we really going to lean into this? take on these acquisitions, take on these new types of offers or not, because there's pros and cons to both of those, both those choices. But obviously you guys, um, you know, made your choice. I was just reading an, uh, an article from several years ago, you know, Microsoft faced this same inflection point. And there was an article, whatever, eight years ago, you know, it, it is, you know, is, is Microsoft, uh, you know, ever going to be a growth stock again, right? It was just going to be a value stock. And now it's all about their growth stock. You know, there's no, nobody doubts that, right? So the same, same inflection point. All right. Well, we, we spent, the, interesting, yeah. the interesting thing about that choice, by the way, is you have to have conviction about choosing the growth path. Absolutely. You don't have to have necessarily conviction about choosing the value path because you're going to default into that. That's right. But if you don't have conviction about the growth path, you won't get there. Yeah, there's a, there's there's a uh, the last chapter in the book is why companies fail. And, and we talk about this very issue, right, yeah. in terms of aligning the, the, the executive team, specifically the CEO and the board on this, because if they are not lockstep, on really leaning into this. And this is where you see the worst thing, Kara, is, is a thrashing motion. Hey, we think we want to be growth. And, you know, we're, oh, wait a minute, this is getting hard. There's headwinds, you know, yep. hey, wait, wait, we're going to miss the number for the quarter. Oh, well, let's go back. Yep. <laughs> right. And you see this back and forth. And that is, that is the, the worst case scenario that we see. So you yep. really need to get everybody, you know, lockstep. And, and I will tell you, it takes a special CEO and a special board to actually lean into that growth decision because it's a lot harder to make that call. And so I think the default position for a majority of tech companies has been around for a while for both the boards and the executive team is to basically ride the course of the value play. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot, it's a lot easier. It, but it to your point, your point, unless, unless they're purposeful in saying that's what we're doing, um, yeah. they're more likely to end up with that kind of worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Lower valuations. I mean, you can see it in their numbers, right? You'll see a revenue multiplier. I mean, they're, the company's valued it, you know, if they're lucky, 1.5 annual revenues because people are like, what is the story, right? I mean, you're not, you're, you're not demonstrating growth and how long, you know, can you ride the value? So, um, but, you know, this is a really interesting, I, I keep saying this in this series, and this is a really interesting time in the tech industry. And there's a, an article I just did, I, I call it the Innovator's Dilemma Squared. And the reason I call it that, and you're living it at F5, 
is you know the classic innovators dilemma is that the the market shifts on the technology side there's a paradigm shift and you have to decide you know do I jump onto the new technology from the one I was you know very good at but the business model was still pretty much the same right I was selling technology on site it's just different technology now I mean you're at five you've got a technology shift and a business model shift simultaneously yeah. right and the new business model has very different economics than the old. Yep. And so it is literally innovators dilemma squared. And, and so, which is why you do see a lot of these boards and CEOs just paralyzed, right? Is they're thinking like, how do I really want to lean into this? Um, all right. I, I took up so a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. I have one more question for you. Um, I know that you are a board member uh, for an organization named Girls at Code. Uh, can, you, can you tell the audience here about the objectives of what I think is an awesome organization and how folks could, could help with that mission? Sure. Girls Who Code is on the mission to close the gender gap in tech. If you look back at 1995, roughly 37% of computer scientists were women. And our projections today is that number has fallen to about 22%. And so what Girls Who Code is doing is looking at creating a set of programs that address uh, middle school, high school, and college-age women to encourage them, educate them, and build a community around women who want to do computer science and tech and use tech to change the world. So, so far, you know, they've served over 450,000 girls. Large percent of those girls are coming from historically underrepresented groups. And so, you know, great, great for um, other angles of of diversity than just Mm -hmm. the gender uh, angle. And they are really going after a set of values that are around bravery um, and and really helping uh, those girls build up the courage to participate in an industry that is predominantly male still and give them resilience, persistence, and ambition. It's around sisterhood, so creating that community for them. And then it's also about activism. So not just preparing them for the workforce, but preparing them to lead in their communities. So great organization. Uh, Anybody that wants to get involved, you know, you can certainly donate and work with your company to be hosting uh, any one of these programs. For example, there's immersion programs that offer uh, multi-week courses to, to uh, cohorts of women in, in various computer disciplines. And you can also participate in mentorship type programs or, or job fairs to provide uh, access to employment opportunities for them. Oh, that's fantastic. So I assume if, if we go to their website, they'll, they'll outline the different programs that they have and the ways. Website is girlswhocode.com. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks so much for, for that overview. Well, I, Again, just thanks so much for the time you, you spent with us today and sharing your insights. As we just said, I think it's a really exciting and challenging time for tech uh, companies and product teams specifically. And I think that you know product organizations are going to need people like yourself that have this very broad perspective on, on what's going on. And I think a really well-rounded you know, business acumen. So thanks again for being here. And, and I always like to end these podcasts with, with, with the big question of the day. And so my question to the audience is, are your product teams still running on the hamster wheel of feature functionality or have they jumped off to start mastering the art of value realization? Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.